most physicians that I've come across that look into mergers or acquisitions are nearing the end of their careers. They're looking for a way out. <laughs> They're looking for that segue to decrease their hours, to think about ways to maybe scale back a little bit. I was on the opposite end of that spectrum where I'm more of a mid-career professional. You know, I'm 15 years out of training, 16 years, I guess. And I was actually looking to expand, but felt as though I really couldn't do that without a true infrastructure. And when I looked at the options, a merger made the most sense, actually, because the infrastructure was in place to continue my brand, basically. You're listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic, the podcast where the most high-performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So join me, Miriam Shaviv, host and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills, and experience to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. Let's jump in. Dr. Aaron Ilyas is founder of Montgomery Dermatology, a thriving chain of three clinics in Pennsylvania. That alone would be enough for me to interview her. But at the end of 2020, she did something surprising. She sold her clinics to a much larger group, Schweiger Dermatology, at the peak of her career, while staying on as an employee in her own former practice. We're going to dive into the whys and hows in today's podcast. But if Dr. Ilias's name sounds familiar, it might be because you've caught her on the QVC channel promoting Amber Noon. That's a line of innovative contemporary clothing which protects wearers from the sun's harmful UV rays. She's also served as assistant professor of dermatology at Drexel University College of Medicine, completed a master's in bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's founder of the Center of Applied Medical Ethics, a nonprofit focused on exploring disparities in healthcare delivery. Let's dive in. So Dr. Aram Ilyas, welcome to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic. Really happy to have you here. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely my pleasure. And we're just a few months out of probably one of the biggest days of, you know, for you professionally, which was the last day of December 2020, um, which was the day that you merged your own practice with its three locations, with a much bigger chain, Schweiger Dermatology. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so this actually was an interesting process because I felt as though when I was approaching it, it was very different from the way other doctors approach it. Most physicians that I've come across that look into mergers or acquisitions are nearing the end of their careers. They're looking for a way out. <laughs> They're looking for that segue to decrease their hours, to think about ways to maybe scale back a little bit. I was on the opposite end of that spectrum where I'm more of a mid-career professional. You know, I'm 15 years out of training, 16 years, I guess. And I was actually looking to expand, but felt as though I really couldn't do that without a true infrastructure. And when I looked at the options, a merger made the most sense, actually, because the infrastructure was in place to continue my brand, basically. 
Okay, so let's back up a little bit. So, um, so tell me a little bit first about what your practice looked like at the time. The practice that you set up is Montgomery Dermatology, is that right? That's correct. I started it June 1st, 2009, uh, you know, almost 12 years ago, and it was from scratch. I was really, I rented office space. I bought a couple exam tables and a couple of computers and had this huge file cabinet with one chart on it. It was crazy. <laughs> um, but, you know, we expanded from there. So by the time you reached 2020, you're talking about um, 11 years later, what, what you were, you were three locations. How, how big were you? So basically three locations, three dermatologists. We had close to 30,000 patients overall within the practice where we started with that one day one. Oh, I started with the one day one. Over the course of the next you know, 11 years, I had added in three dermatologists really more recently in the past three to four years actually. Expanded locations. I got my second location two years into practice and then added the third in this past couple of years. So when you say that you are missing infrastructure, what exactly do you mean by that? You know, as you expand, really the challenge that I faced was staffing needs and trying to be able to really provide the resources our physicians as we expanded needed to continue to grow their aspects of the practice. Each of us had our own interests, our own patient populations that gravitated towards us. I knew what my referring doctors, my patients needed, but really to provide them with the resources they needed, I started to look for either other people to help us or resources, you know, uh, re uh, services, other things that were out there to help them build their brand, their name as well too. And just the day-to-day -day grind of having enough staff around available at each of these locations or potentially more locations, it comes with challenges. So you started thinking about a merger as the solution. What were your considerations there? Obviously, that's not a uh, obviously that's a complex solution. Um, what were your what were your concerns first of all ahead of doing it? So my biggest concern, and the reason I shied away for it, from it for years, um, was really truly just that I every. Uh, solution I found seemed to pitch themselves to me as though they were going to let me out of it. <laughs> and I felt like, no, 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 no. I'm trying to stay in it and trying to continue to expand my hours and my availability to my patients while scaling back my administrative burdens and building this practice further. I felt as though they weren't necessarily addressing most of what I was looking for probably because that's how their pitches are designed for older doctors. I mean, you, you personally, or do you feel that they were, weren't concerned enough with what they could offer your colleagues, which is clearly a big concern as well? Yeah, you know, a lot of it is the infrastructure they had on the ground as well locally, because there are plenty of groups out there that purchase practices in this um, in throughout the 50 United uh, States. What ends up happening though, is if they don't have anyone locally based, they really are doing what most we could do on our own. You know, what we, we can get electronic records easily. We can get billing staff. That's not a problem. The real thing was, do they have somebody here on the ground, other practices they've established to continue to build us into their infrastructure as well as a great reputation? You know, that's another big thing too, is that when you do consider these, you are taking on the reputation of 
the group that you're merging with in many ways. And you wanted to make sure that everything I'd built had not been lost in that. I didn't want somebody to say, oh my gosh, I don't want to come see you anymore because you're a part of that group. And I felt like, no, this is a problem. We need to make sure we address this in every way. So I really put it aside, the thought for a long time until this, this option came up. So how did you go about finding a partner? Because that's really what you're looking for. You're looking for a partner. How, how did you go about right. How did you find how, how did you go about that process? Uh, so a lot of these groups will contact us directly or contacted me through the Academy of Dermatology, our annual meetings. There's always a, a variety of booths set up for this purpose. My general view of it was to talk to them and kind of hash out their pitch and how they would pitch to me as opposed to me asking them what they could provide me. I wanted to see what their general approach was. And I by far and away felt as though most would either say, we are going to provide you with X, Y, and Z so that you can step back and spend more time with the things you want to do. And I thought, well, the thing I want to do is see patients. <laughs> I don't want to do other things necessarily. Or they would say, um, we will provide you with the financial resources to build, um, but not necessarily the infrastructure. So it was almost more of an investment opportunity that they saw that I could take those monetary resources to build with. But again, I wasn't looking for a monetary input. I was looking for a true infrastructure where I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. And um, in this whole process, did you essentially do this alone as the head of your practice? Or you have colleagues, you, have, you had other dermatologists on staff. Were they, uh, and obviously you were taking um, real consideration of their, of their needs. So were they part of this process as well? Truthfully, no. So I, I'm the sole owner. I was a sole owner of the practice. They were not partners just yet. And I had felt as though, you know, in considering options, I was a little nervous to even discuss with them the possibility because I felt as though two things would come up. One was their intention to purchase into the practice at some point as partners. But two, I didn't want them to think I was retiring or leaving and start looking for other options as well, too. Because the, the thought of somebody considering a sale or a merger or an acquisition simply conjures up this idea that, you know, well, her, her oldest son is, you know, graduating from high school. Maybe she's looking to scale back. Maybe she's looking to step back. And then the natural inclination is to say, maybe I should go look for something else that might suit my needs. So I personally did not initially. However, as I decided that this was the right option, I did explain it to them in a way that I actually looked for an option that would suit their needs also. Meaning I, I came down to a few options, but I really looked for one that I knew that my other dermatologists could benefit from by far and away more than myself, even in some ways too, where they could expand and see the benefits of doing so too. So obviously handling a merger negotiation is extremely different to every other aspect of the business that you must have done before. Um, just by its very nature. It's not something that you do, you know, it's a once in the career, twice in the career kind of thing that you do. So how Hopefully. did you, how did you, um, how did you approach that? What kind of help did you get? It must be very intimidating first. Oh, it's, it's beyond intimidating because it's this, you know, big corporation where they clearly have resources far beyond my means and, you know, a talent and expertise that they can say things where you just feel like you're in a tizzy where who knows what's a pitch and what's real and what's not. Um, I actually, even though they gave references and other things to help support their pitch, 
I didn't actually call their references. I called practices cold that had worked with them before or sold to them. Um, because I felt as though if they're going to give me the name of somebody, that person's clearly going to give a positive impression. But I knew the other practices were a small community of physicians, of dermatologists in this country. We, we can reach out to each other directly. And I did. I really just called them cold. I knew of um, not only some individual dermatologists, but also some, um, a couple of people that had larger groups that were CEOs, but not dermatologists that had sold their sort of group of practices to them as well, too, so that I could see it from different aspects as well. So tell me, once you, uh, uh, once you had completed the merger, basically right at the end of, uh, of December 2020, we're really not very far into that. Are you talking about merging um, two different ways of working? Um, how do you actually go about that, um, you know, creating that, that, that new working environment and, uh, and, and actually merging, you know, two different set, sets of working, you know, the, the new reality? Oh, you know, that was actually another factor that, that figured into this decision, too. The way I boiled it down to our day-to-day -day business operations, the day-to-day -day experience of our doctors, our staff, boils down to our electronic medical record and our scheduling platform, essentially. Meaning if that was changed substantially, we'd be in trouble. Our staff would be pulling their hair out, trying to figure out what's happening. This company actually luckily used the same electronic record we did. And actually that made the transition really smooth in so many ways because ultimately, day-to-day-wise, in terms of what we do, how we approach it, patient care, charting, scheduling, didn't change. It really didn't. If anything, it got a little bit easier because it was consolidated into one system that we were already familiar with, as opposed to using multiple different systems. But on the back end, what we were doing in internally, we had external resources within their organization that were taking care of these things for us. So they suddenly had a person to call or message to say, handle this. And they were so pleased. <laughs> so how did you manage that transition for the rest of the staff? You really spoke about how you, how you um, sold it essentially to the yeah. other dermatologists, but that's very different to the bulk of your team. How did you ease them into this and make it easier for them? You know, that's a really funny process because I actually called a lot of dermatologists who had sold to the same company or to other companies and said, what did you do? And a lot of them gave me different approaches, different styles, different ways of doing things. But I really felt as though um, the main thing I had to convey to the staff is what really benefited them ultimately was the fact that they were getting help. They were getting the help that they needed to really do their day-to-day -day job without being stressed to do other tasks that really weren't in their sort of job responsibilities. But as a, you know, in a smaller organization, that's what happens. We all multitask, we all jump in and help each other out. They finally felt as though they could see their role being clearer defined because they had other resources to, to reach out to, to take care of the sides things that they were always handling. So really, it was telling them, look, you are going to get help. Help is on the way. <laughs> you are going to have, you know, the there's a call center. I know those things can be a little challenging for patients and other things to merge into. But ultimately, from a staffing perspective, the phones ringing off the hook is the biggest challenge of a day-to-day -day practice, for, from my perspective. Is that thing does not stop ringing? practice, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it does not stop 
ringing. It'll ring in your head when you get home and you just feel like, for God's sake, stop ringing. So for them, that was actually to say the phones would not ring as much or only for what is absolutely essential for you. They were sold in a heartbeat on that alone. But that was the kind of infrastructure you're talking about, the call center, the ability oh, yeah. the back end. Yes. Um, and, and we're now a couple of months into that. So what have, what have been, have there been any benefits, first of all, that you didn't expect that you've already seen? Oh, you know, my biggest benefit that I wasn't anticipating to happen this quickly was the ability to expand as quickly as we have. You know, we actually, within a couple of months, have already added in they have a really nice organ, um, organizational structure where they have a physician's assistant training program. And so not only did I get to partake in that right out of the bat, and my physician's assistant is graduating from the program and joining our practice, I'm also training another one already. Um, and we have a Mohs surgeon coming in within a couple of months. The ability to just bring these people in and to give them the resources that they need to continue to grow it's just, it's remarkable to me how quickly it's happening. What about the challenges? Because any merger like that, to, you know, just to be fair, is not never going right. to be completely plain sailing. So what, what, what are the challenges being? Oh, you know, my, I think the biggest challenge is being the liaison because I am the reason this happened. And I, you know, if anything challenges my physicians or my staff, I feel directly responsible for that. So I think the biggest thing I've had to do is to constantly make myself available to my staff and my physicians to say, you know, if anything comes up, you need to keep me in the loop and not think of this as you're on your own and I've walked away from the situation. I need you to let me be your voice so that we can make it better because it's a matter of making sure that things don't get out of control. You know, if you find that there is something happening that doesn't sit well with you, you don't feel comfortable with the way it's being taken care of, the, you know, the thing that I'd always worry about are patient calls when they have a concern. How is that being handled? If there's a call center, how quickly does that get to us? Are there ways around that? I was a very, I still am a very hands-on doctor in general, meaning I feel as though if my patient has a worry, I want to give them a direct way to get to me. And I do always worry about It sounds about like one things. of the challenges is the staff really figuring out what your position, what your place still is in this. Is that right? That is exactly right. And understanding that I, I'm, I'm there, uh, I'm on their side. I'm trying to be with them and for them and trying to make it better for them, not trying to make it harder by any stretch. So then the obvious question um, is, you have been your own boss for, for 11 years, right? It's been your own show for 11 years. What's it like to suddenly have to answer to someone else? <laughs> My husband was talking about this the other day, is I've never actually been employed other than being an intern and a resident. I've never had to answer anyone. And so we were looking at our vacation schedule and I thought, oh my gosh, I have vacation days. I have to figure out what days I can take off and tell them in advance. And I have to make sure it doesn't go over a certain number. And these are things that I was never familiar with or knew about. And I know I put these things on my staff and my, my other doctors, but I can't say I ever physically experienced the, the need to keep things <laughs> in tight. Um, however, those are small things. I would say that it's really just having a structure to my day-to-day -day life that I, I was definitely, um, I, I had a lot of freedom before, of course, in terms of being able to say, you know, I'll just take next Thursday off or, you know, kind of move things around as I saw fit. Of course, I can still do that um, to a large extent. But at the same time, it's not as simple 
when you're in a larger organization and there's a lot more people that get involved in a, in a decision like that, as opposed to a simple, you know, me telling the front desk, go call Thursday morning and move them. <laughs> that doesn't happen as easily anymore. <laughs> there's, there's definitely a mental switch there. There is, there is. So what's your advice to other doctors, um, other clinic owners um, who may be considering a merger um, for any reason? Uh, what's, uh, especially at your career stage, um, you know, what, 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 what are the things they really need to be aware of and the things that will help them make this a success? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, and I've been telling a lot of my, my friends and colleagues that are struggling with certain decisions to be made is to decide, you know, is, is this, is your decision to be in private practice for you or to add others in. We always have this assumption, it's a natural progression where you start off on your own, you're doing your own thing, you get very busy and you know you need help, you add in another doctor. It seems like a simple progression, but every single physician you bring in adds another layer of needs. And it's a matter of recognizing at some point, are those the needs business and administratively that you'd like to take on personally, knowing that these are gonna fall on you, or would you like to continue to expand but with help, because if your goal is to get bigger, don't shy away from the thought of this type of process, because this is not the traditional thought of you're retiring or you're stepping away or that you're, I mean, my autonomy has not been taken from me by any stretch of the imagination. If anything, I feel like I've been able to be more able to provide services for my patients that I couldn't before. So I look guess that would be the main objection, that the main people would feel that they don't lose control. That was that is. Oh, absolutely. You know, when I, I wanted a phototherapy unit, I woke up about nine years ago and I remember I woke up and thought, I need a light box because I have so many psoriasis patients and I'd been referring them out. By, that was at 7 a.m. I woke up and thought that and by 4 p.m. I already had a lease waiting on my, my desk and I had gotten it within two weeks where it was shipped in and we set up. Those are things that I could do on the fly because my gut told me I needed it. I know that's not going to be as simple if I wanted something of a certain magnitude down the road, but the reality is, is that maybe it is, it's a small, small gesture to, to let, let go of, but if anything, I've built another resources, you know, they have a laser share program. There are lasers that I've always wanted because once you buy one, you're kind of going to use that for a long stretch as the technology improves. And it's nice to know that we can share those resources now. So I think of it as there's a lot more benefits to be had with the economies of scale that we just don't have access to as private practitioners. I think it's just a matter of deciding, are you going to be a solo doctor with maybe one or two people, or do you really want to get bigger? And you mentioned that you've been having these conversations with other people. So do yeah. is there a sense that there is an increase in people talking about mergers and acquisitions at the moment? Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the, absolutely. The challenges we all face are the, the changes in healthcare, the, un, the lack of being able to predict what's going to happen next, the changes in billing, the changes in reimbursements. It's, it's a lot for an individual to take on. And it's one thing to take it on for yourself. It's, when, it's another thing when you have the responsibility of other salaries and other dermatologists to take on that you really want to do it justice and do right by it. You don't want to take a chance in doing anything that could put anyone else's salary or reimbursements in jeopardy either. Um, so as these things evolve and as healthcare becomes much more layered, I think it's a matter of realizing what we can do on our own and what we can't necessarily. So you're really talking about being super conscious of what you want out of your life and out of your career. 
Um, so take me back though. Let's leave the merger to one side and tell me about setting up your own practice. Did you have a very strong vision for what you wanted back then? Um, that's a good question. I was, you know, a, a, a baby in some ways. I was 32 and I thought, you know, I just want to make my own hours and I'd been working for other practices and I thought I loved the practices. There was nothing wrong with them, but I just didn't want to be beholden to childcare and these other things that kept coming up that I thought I, if I had my own practice, I could set up a room. And if there was an issue, my, my babies could come and sit in there with a babysitter. It felt like it was just more control over my day-to-day -day life. Um, so it wasn't necessarily this grand vision. I can honestly say the only thought I recall having is that I'm going to work five days a week till I'm 40, then four days a week till I'm 50, then three days a week till I'm 60. It was silly things in my brain where I thought that's how I was going to basically go down the path of retirement. I never really thought about expanding or growing. This was really just for me to provide patient care to my patients and be available for my family. That was my way to do everything, essentially. Was there ever any point over the last 11 years when you suddenly realized that, hey, this isn't just an income to me, but I'm building something different and special here? Or, or suddenly you had more of a sense of what it was that you actually wanted to build? Oh, you know, the real thing that woke me up was about three years into my practice when I realized just how substantial my volume was. I had grown word of mouth, you know, building relationships with physicians, referring doctors, going to their offices to chat with them, making myself available with my cell phone, giving it to them, saying you can have same day, next day appointments. I really wanted to be available building my relationships with patients within those within our community where whenever they'd see me, their family members would see me, their neighbors would see me. And I knew at some point I couldn't do it alone. I had thought about just stopping to take new patients, which is a lot what a lot of people do. The backlash I got from that from patients and doctors saying, what do you mean you're not going to take any new patients was substantial. And our front desk said they couldn't handle saying the words anymore because they were so worried about what would happen in the next sentence. They said they just couldn't tell patients I wasn't taking new patients. Um, it wasn't as easy as it sounded. It sounded simple, but they would say, she has to, you don't understand. I need to see her. And what I'm not going to say no to that. And so I realized I just can't do this by myself. So that forced the issue. It forced you to think more about what you're actually building. So what exactly. did you include? What, 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 what at that stage did you decide that you wanted to build? So at that point, I decided at the very least, I need to hire other doctors or, or providers as well. And I had started that process at around that time. And then that what I really realized at that point was, you know, we were always taught the three A's of building the practice, you know, being available, being affable or, you know, friendly and being able, being capable of doing what you do. I felt as though what I learned very quickly is that what I had built was a personal reputation. And it was very hard to translate that into another doctor or provider. What ended up happening is people would say, I want to see her still. And that to me was very frustrating because I felt as though, you know, if I was bringing somebody in, of course, this person had to have been okay. They were good doctors, good providers, but I would still consistently get calls from patients after seeing these other doctors or providers saying, could you just verify that they did the right thing? And I'd say, well, you know, I, this is not okay. <laughs> these are, these are very able and capable doctors and providers and they've never done their, I mean, I've never looked at something and found that they did anything wrong ever, but it was this sense that I, I couldn't scale what I had built because it was me and that was a problem. And I, I, I felt as though I, 
was being locked into this lifestyle of actually working more hours, spending more time, adding more people into my schedule, when this could have been handled in a different way in some ways if patients could understand that it wasn't just me, it was a practice. Yeah, so you essentially had to build the brand rather than making it super personal. Um, So how did you manage to do that? I mean, I think the main thing that I, and I did this from the start in terms of what I named the practice Montgomery Dermatology on purpose to, uh, after the county we live in. We live in Montgomery County so that people saw it as a local practice and not as Ilias Dermatology or something along those lines where they felt like it was me. My thought in doing so was that it would become less personal and expandable. Um, but I think that's what I tried to focus in on is to not say Dr. Ilias is available, but our practice is available. Start to be personalizing the messaging and other things. When I'd contact primaries, I'd say our practice, you know, Montgomery Dermatology, really have reminding them that that was the name of the practice and not just seeing me and trying to be, actually make, encourage my other providers and doctors to be, do what I did initially, to reach out to these doctors directly, build their relationship with them and try to start to expand based on that. Um, it couldn't be just based on what I'd already built. I couldn't really, as much as I wanted to translate my volume into somebody else's schedule, I think they really had to set aside the time and ability to really walk around and do what I did initially. So people realized that they were just like me. And it was just a matter of being able to make that jump to say, it's not just somebody I hired randomly. It was reasonable um, hire to, to, to connect to as well. Uh, and uh, I'm going to get back to this issue of re- reaching out to the other doctors because I think that's really, really interesting. But just before we do that, one more question. Um, did you systematize that in any way? Because when I hear that, I'm like, in a way, that's just replicating the problem because then those doctors, your dermatologists are creating their own personal relationships and then people are only going to want to go to them, right? So that's slightly different to building up a clinic's reputation. Um, right. So did was there any tension there and did you do anything to really build the brand rather than the, um, the, the streams for the other doctors, if you see what I'm saying? I see exactly what you're saying. And I actually think that was part of the reasoning that went behind part of the pushing for the merger as well, because I really felt as though it's very hard to depersonalize this in many ways um, because ultimately physician patient relationships are personal by their very nature. Um, You know, even one of the doctors I hired who's wonderful, it was um, downtown in center city, which is about 15 miles away. Her patient volume still comes out here to see her directly because they, they love her and there's no, they, they are willing to take that journey because it's not, we don't see patients very frequently, maybe once a year, twice a year, they're able and capable of doing so. That I really felt as though for us, at at least at the time, the only way that I could really build them is to build them as a personal reputation, as a personal brand. But we really, you're absolutely right. I was never quite capable of building it as just the practice as a brand. Um, It just never really panned out for me on a personal level because patients didn't see it that way. They saw it as a, a personal relationship. It's really hard to do. And actually, one of the pillars of our um, aesthetic immersion marketing is to make it personal, precisely because people yeah. do want to buy from people and not from brands. But what you do get, there is, a, there is definitely a certain tension there um, between the, the personal relationship. In fact, I was speaking to someone the other day um, who was telling me, um, so, someone we don't work with, but a clinic owner, who was, who was telling me that their marketing wasn't as successful as they think it was. So I asked them why. And one of the things they pointed out was that 
one of their estheticians had moved to another practice recently and she felt that they would they they took like a whole bunch of their patients with them so that's a that's an example of where um really not being able to expand into that brand identity can work against you if it's not the the clinic owner doing that because anyone working from you for you when the the loyalty is personal it becomes some kind that there's tension there for sure you can't hold it in in house i mean that's what ends up happening is all even the practices i'd worked at i i worked a year in boston um because my husband was in fellowship this was you know 17 years ago and i or 13 years ago and i still have patients that will come down from there once a year because it's a small trip for them to get their skin check and i'm shocked because i think there is something at least that about healthcare and medicine that is very personal and when somebody makes a personal connection it's very difficult to change that unless that connection was never made you know if they never if they only saw you as the provider technically speaking of certain skills to um, you know accomplish healthcare, it would be one thing but ultimately medicine is not just a science or technology it's an art for a reason and it has a lot to do with how we communicate and how comfortable they feel in our communicate and our communication skills and feeling like they feel like they can tell us anything or say anything and not hold back. And I don't know that that is scalable other than educationally, meaning un unless we train our providers and our medical students, our residents and our um, physician's assistants to do that and recognize that, I'm not quite sure that it's quite as scalable as we think. Uh, ultimately, really a clinic that's growing has to be skilled in promoting everyone who works for it and you know, make it Absolutely. personal in that way. Um, but you're focused on several people, not just one. And that, you know, a lot of it is even when I would hire new doctors, I'd sit them down and say, what would you like to do? And I know they're dermatologists. I get that. And I know you want to do skincare, but what, what is it that you'd like to be known for? You know, what would you like to build? What aspect of your practice would you like to build? Would you like to do everything? That's perfectly fine. It's, that's what I do. I do general everything, but some people want to do mostly cosmetics. Some people want to do mostly skin cancer. I try to get them to really define that a little bit or start to get a sense of it because to some extent they do have to build their personal brand so that they feel as though people are reaching out to them for specific needs and specific wants. I remember when I joined, um, one of the first practices I joined was this older gentleman. He was the nicest person. And he said, you know, I think I want to tell, you know, encourage women, younger women with, you know, young kids to consider, you know, certain things because they thought that he would, you know, they would relate to me. But he said, you know, ultimately even the older men would come and see me and he couldn't understand it. And I think it was just because their wives and mothers would say, go see my doctor. <laughs> and it had less to do with who I was and more to do with the relationship that we were building. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to take a quick break here, but when we get back, um, I'm going to ask you about that method you had of growing or have of growing your practice. And also I want to hear about something very, very unique, a clothing line that you launched that has been a massive success. And I want to hear all about that as well. Hey, it's Miriam here again. During this break, I have a quick question for you. Could you use some more Threadlifts patients? How about some more body sculpting patients? If the answer to either of those questions is yes, then we have two campaigns you can implement right now to generate new inquiries and bookings. The Threadlifts campaign is based on one we've run extremely successfully for three aesthetic clinics in Honolulu, LA, and London. 
So it's tried and tested on two continents and we've been refining and optimizing it ever since. But don't take my word for it. We've got a case study explaining exactly how the Threadlifts campaign works to bring in new patients and the kind of results it's generated. I've put the link in the show notes. Just head down there right now to grab your copy. And if you'd like to discuss how it can work for your clinic, my email address is in that document as well. We're also running a case study group right now for clinics that want to attract more body sculpting and skin tightening patients. We'll be working with you very closely to generate immediate appointments, both from new leads and from your existing patient list, and to create a body sculpting sales funnel that can bring in more high value appointments long-term. To find out more about how it works, email me at miriam at brainstorm-digital.co.uk. That's miriam at brainstorm-digital.co.uk. And I'll send you the details right now. Now let's get back to the show. Hi, everyone. We're here with Dr. Aram Ilyas um, talking about how to merge a, an aesthetic practice. Um, and we've discussed that. But now I want to talk about the early days of your practice. You mentioned several times that your real method of growing was reaching out to, um, to local doctors, local physicians to make that connection with them. Now, first of all, I find it very interesting because very often um, clinic owners are very focused on their patients, but you were really focused on relationships with your peers. How did you click that that might be a method of growing your practice? Well, I mean, it's, it's more of a practical view is you have to say to yourself, well, the, each of these physicians has their own patient population who trusts them, respects them, and will listen to them ultimately in terms of where they send their patients to. There are, you know, in terms of aesthetically speaking, people can go anywhere, of course, out of pocket, but with insurance and medical insurance, they go to whoever's in their network or whoever's in the referral network. But ultimately, each of those medical patients is an aesthetic patient as well, and that it grows from there as well, too. So it's understanding that the beauty of dermatology is that we blur the line between, you know, medicine and cosmetics. You can actually see that people will come in routinely for their full skin exam and say, what do I do about my forehead wrinkles? And so you've got yourself a patient who is an open audience to learn about everything aesthetically as well, too. So a lot of these physicians must have had other people approaching them. Um, so how did you do that in a way that made you stand out? I think the, the biggest thing I did was be free with my cell phone number and <laughs> reaching out to me directly. Ultimately, at least in listening and hearing people, is that they could never get appointments with dermatologists or they would have somebody in the office that they're genuinely worried about and they didn't know what to do or who to call. I became that person to call where I was very comfortable being making myself available, saying, if you want to send me photos or call me or text me, I'm here for you, even to emergency rooms and urgent care. So not just our sort of outpatient doctors, but I would go and give talks at emergency rooms, urgent cares and say, this, this is what I'd love to do and be available for you so that you know that I'm your point of contact. And quite frankly, they, take, they took me up on it. They really did. My phone would buzz quite constantly, but in a good way. So I, I, I'm interested in that because I think that very often with what you're talking about essentially is, is, is networking and joint ventures. Um, but to really have your name stick with those potential joint venture partners, you probably really have to reach out more than once. So did, did, you, did you do that? Did you have a strategy for, hey, I'm here, just wanted to remind you uh, for actually nurturing that relationship if you didn't hear back from them initially, for example? 
Oh, absolutely. One of the biggest ways I would do that would be to say, can I come and give grand rounds or give a talk on a constant concern that comes up within your practice. I can talk to your staff. I can talk to the other physicians in the emergency room. I can give brain rounds to the internal medicine department on topics that are of interest to them in terms of what they see as challenges on their day-to-day life. You know, when you flash that photo in front of them and you say, well, this is how I'd approach it, most of them will see that photo and say, you're the person I'm going to be calling. They're not necessarily going to follow all the steps that you said afterwards. They just needed to know that that's something you handle. Um, but so by really establishing- classic, classic tactic, you're offering value, what we would call in the business, you're offering value in advance. That is exactly right. And they realized that I was, as much as I do cosmetics, it's probably about 30% of my practice. I am a medical dermatologist. And at heart, I love what I do. I love rashes. And they recognized that it was a pleasure for me to see those patients. And again, each and every one of those patients is a, a human being that has other cosmetic needs and their own family members as well, too, that have those too. So as your practice grew, did you continue doing that? Or was that just something that you did at the beginning? I did it quite a bit at the beginning. And as I continued to grow, I was, I'm still very uh, available as far as cell phone use goes. Luckily, that's gotten better in terms of technology over time. So it's not directly to my cell phone number. It's through HIPAA compliant apps and other ways that we can uh, achieve that without it always being my, my personal number. Um, but I, in the end, as I added doctors in, I would encourage them to be the one giving talks to establish their names in the same circles. So that, again, by by doing so, not only was their personal reputation growing, but I really felt as though from a practice perspective, people recognized that that was my focus, my mission of my practice was to be the same type of provider. So that hopefully my goal over time was to say, look, if you're referring to anyone in our group, we're, we're all very similar and that they can trust it as a group overall. So very often, um, you know, again, it is a marketing thing. Um, we talk about how you have to make it reciprocal. So was there anything you offered beyond treating their patients? Was there, and beyond, um, you know, offering to come in to do uh, lectures or presentations, was there anything Mm -hmm. that you offered them in return? No, no, I mean, I I was not money, but (laughs) else. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) so I I mean, I, (laughs) no, there was no monetary exchange or anything of that nature, but at the same time, um, nothing other than, you know, actually at one point, and this was about from 2014 to 17, I actually did serve as chair of dermatology at our local hospital as well to provide inpatient consultations as well too. So it was more just being a part of the medical community. Community. I can't say that I ever, you know, did much more beyond that because that was what their need was. Because when you think about a physician in their day-to-day practice, they need it to flow and they need to know that if there's going to be something that stops the flow, which is oftentimes a rash or something that just makes them say, this is not in my toolbox of things that I'm comfortable with handling. They just need to know immediately who their point of contact is to reach out to, to say, I know where to send you. So when you recognize that that is their challenge, their barrier, and it just makes their day flow smoother to know that they can send me a quick test and I can get them into the office immediately, they've checked that off their list, their patient is handled, they know they're in good hands, I, I take over from there. That's what their need was, and that's what we provided. And other than that, obviously that was extremely powerful to grow your, your practice. Um, what other marketing did you do? 
You know, really not, not a lot in terms of actual, you know, print or otherwise. Every now and again, somebody would come by and say, you know, would you, you know, put a print ad? Most of the time, if I ever did that, it was more to support the journals and less for me. Because <laughs> I can't say I ever, on a personal level, ever saw much come back from advertising. Uh, and it's it's interesting because I felt as though, there, you know, when I added in other doctors, they would often say, can we you know, have a Botox special or can we do something along those lines? I always felt like even the people that we would bring in for those types of um, treatments or other promotional types of affairs, they would be temporary patients. They were people looking for a deal. They weren't necessarily looking for us. They weren't necessarily looking for a particular, you know, push. They truly were looking for a deal. And that's not a sustainable business to me or a sustainable model. Now that's, that's the problem with advertising on price. It doesn't really work. You really need those relationships there. That's what Otherwise it is. you just attract price shoppers. So how about um, marketing to your own patients? Did, did you do any of that? So that's, I would that, do. Because that's the case where you do have those relationships. So for yeah. us, uh, marketing to your own patients, again, is a pillar of, of, of aesthetic commercial marketing because it's just so obvious that those are the people who are going to be the easiest people to book with you again. So is that something oh, you're absolutely. So what I would do, and this is kind of, again, my, so I don't know if I, I mentioned to you, I have a degree in bioethics as well. I have a master's in bioethics and I have always been a little nervous about taking the patient list that we have and marketing to them anything that they did not come in for. Um, and so I've always felt a little uncomfortable with reaching out to them for anything beyond what they they knew they had which was you know a medical relationship potentially some cosmetics that they had had pursued it but really I looked at it a little differently where I felt as though we did do email marketing but in a different way it was actually providing them with information that I knew that they needed so for example I know that my patients will always say which sunscreen should I wear it's a very simple question our email would be you know these are the brands that we've gone to the drugstore and made a list of anything you can find locally that you can purchase so that they knew that we were a trustworthy resource that you could actually get practical questions answered but also know on the bottom of the screen it says you can click here to make an appointment anytime so that they could schedule anything that they wanted and maybe have some topics that they could click on but not necessarily marketing in the traditional sense of it wasn't a promotion it wasn't it was more just again establishing ourselves it, in it their absolutely minds. it absolutely is marketing but you're what yeah. you're doing essentially is you were nurturing them building up that relationship and building up your authority um, in, in, a, in a sense, it's pure marketing, you know, that it's, right. um, it's and, and to be honest, it's something that a lot of clinics are on the other side, exactly what you're saying. They're constantly sending out price driven promotions and it's email blasts. Yeah. And really you do need to nurture that relationship as well. Um, personally, I think you need the mix and personally, I think yeah. there are ways that every email can do both. Um, sure which is actually in a way what you described, um, but certainly um, just to educate people uh, and, and to nurture that relationship with them um, is, is super effective. Oh, absolutely. Meaning not, not to necessarily say there's a promotion for Botox, but to explain what Botox does. And so that people can look at it through a different lens and not just think of it as a, as a, as a deal, but think of it as, oh, I didn't even know that about it. It's more educational than anything else. Yeah. And it also builds up that relationship very much because they come to see you as the person who gives the truth and the value right. of advice. And that's also something that's ultimately, A, is genuinely useful for people, and B ultimately does help you bring more people into the, into the practice.
of course. Um, so right now, coronavirus, I wouldn't say it's winding down, um, but we're a year into it. Um, yeah. So has that changed the way that you market at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say that really, I can't say that we market beyond telling people about our availability as being available. Uh, I think that was the biggest uh, challenge in the first couple of months, March and April of last year was there was this assumption that you should, and to some extent, yes, you should have, but at the same time, that you should not see your doctor, or you shouldn't leave your home. And we were getting calls from patients with really concerning, you know, boils or, or shingles and other things and saying, well, what am I supposed to do? Um, so I felt as though our marketing was more focused on explaining to patients the availability that we had in different platforms of availability that might be not be the traditional coming into the office, but telehealth and other services that we made ourselves available to them and helping to help them understand that we've created a safe and clean environment for them to be in if they need to be seen was the main focus of our marketing overall. Which makes sense. Um, but of course you have experienced marketing something very, very different um, because at some point um, over the last few years, you came up with a completely different angle to your business, um, which was, which is, um, Amber Noon, it's a, a, a clothing line, um, which as I understand it, it's, uh, it protects you from the sun. Is that correct? That's correct. So I had been, you know, giving advice to patients for years and our standard sort of party line is, you know, wear your sunblock because it prevents skin cancer in terms of reducing your chances of getting a sunburn. And also I'd always throw in there just because I had been trained to do so that the standard t-shirt only protects your skin with maybe an SPF of three to five. It's not much. So be sure to wear sunscreen underneath your shirt. And I thought to myself after years of saying that, that's insane because <laughs> no one does that. <laughs> and then I realized, practically speaking, patients would say to me, why is this basal cell on my lower back? Why is it here? Why is it there? And I really actually sat down and started to study textiles more out of curiosity as to what, what is this stuff that I keep telling people about um, in terms of clothing not being effective? And I, I started to see the other side of things. So it started as a textile journey before it became a clothing line. And, and, no, and what was the gap in the market? Because you, you decided to create your own. So it wasn't something I that did. you bring in from elsewhere. Why, why did you decide to create it yourself? Well, there was two big things that I came across. One was, well, the sunscreen industry is a relatively new industry. And you can already see we are, they're facing challenges in terms of safety and, and you know, absorbability of sunscreen. We're already starting to see that those, are, those issues are coming up with chemical sunscreens. When I was studying textiles, I thought, well, there are these sun protective brands out there that use these um, sun protective textiles. What I found was that they do usually treat them with uh, UV finishes to protect them from sunlight and to sustain themselves through 40 washes which makes sense, but there's not a lot of studies on these finishes. And I started to get a little concerned because this came up with pajamas in the 1940s and 50s where they actually had to start treating them with flame retardants um, because of issues or concerns of the flammability of pajamas. And then again, in the 70s, they discovered that those flame retardants had concerns in terms of endocrine disruption and other um, problems that I thought, I hope we're not going down this path again, because most of my patients would tell me that they didn't like the feel of sun protective clothing. It has a slippery kind of parachute like material feel. They know there's something in there or they can hear it when they walk, that wish, wish sound when they walk. And it's also not cute. You know, it's something that you'd wear 
because you had to. It looked like you were wearing medicine <laughs> because you had to block your skin and you needed anything to do it. And I felt like, you know, this isn't going to work as in terms of a recommendation unless it made sense for people to have it on all the time. And to address what I knew were the biggest issues that most of the parents that I see as patients will say is they just don't want to put more products or expose their kids to more potential for chemicals, that they just need a safer option that they feel more confident in. And so that's when I started wearing that. it, you know, in on the beach or in good weather, or are they do you have like a winter range? Are people actually wearing this day to day? So our clothing is designed to be worn every single day, meaning I want you to wear it to work to play, to school, to not school, because I want it to be just your clothing to wear, where you happen to pick it out because it's something you would wear every day, but it's made with these textiles that we're in the process of getting a patent for that are sun protective, not based on UV chemical finishes, but that are actually sun protective based on the weave and the construction of the textile and how tightly woven it is while still being breathable so that patients feel like they're getting protection just from their everyday clothing. So I guess the most surprising thing to me, just to be really blunt, is that patients care enough to want to wear sun protective clothing. Mm. Like, how, what convinced them? I, they're cute clothes, but yeah. do, they, do they generally care enough? You know, it's hard enough to get people to wear SPF. I'm surprised that people really cared enough, to be honest. Well, it's interesting because I think most people, especially initially that were purchasing it, had no idea <laughs> that it was sun protective until they looked at the label when they got home. You know, we were in a um, in something called the market at Macy's in Florida for a little while where I couldn't be down there to promote it because it's an entirely different state, but it was just sitting there. In a department store, you have no way to really tell people what makes it different. You know, it's just on a rack in that clothing store. And um, people would actually email us afterwards and say, I just bought this because it was a cute top. And I looked at it and it says it protects me from the sun. Woohoo. You know, that's a great bonus. Probably the best um, so way to now, change behavior, actually. It's probably genius in terms of changing people's behavior and generally. And that, that is the goal. That is my thought because I felt like I can educate till I'm blue in the face, but ultimately it becomes medicinal or the people that did take it based on educational approaches were people that had a lot of skin cancers in the past or had a strong risk for skin cancer. We do get a whole slew of people that will contact us and say, I'm so thankful you came up with this. I keep getting skin cancer. I'm afraid to go outside. This makes me feel more confident to do so. That's sort of one group of people. But I'd say the other bigger group of people are people that just happen to like the styles and look. But that was what our goal was, is to make it a bonus, but not make it necessarily the only reason you're purchasing it. So we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I still really want to ask you a couple of questions about, cool. about Amber Noon. Um, to cut a long story short, and I'm sure it is a long story, it's been a massive success. You're now in QVC. Um, you must be selling a lot of these things. Um, what have you, it's a very, very, very different type of thing to promote and to market than aesthetic um, or dermatology treatments. Um, so what have you learned along the way? Has it affected the way you run the clinics in any way? You know, it's funny, people will say, why don't you recommend it to your patients directly in the room? And again, with my little bioethics degree and always speaking in my brain, I will tell people that sun protective clothing is a very good idea. You should look into it and give, but I won't say buy my brand <laughs> because I'm not very good at that. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm sure they discovered along the way and I hope they do. Uh, but ultimately in terms of my day-to-day, -day, it's really using my day-to-day -day experience to support why I do what I do with the brand and recognizing where the challenge 
challenges people face are. You know, when they say to me, how do I improve the V area of my chest? It's, you know, got the sun damage, it's discolored, I get this leathery thickening. There's a way to prevent it. It's just by wearing sunscreen, but no one ever does it on their chest. They always do their face and stop short at their neck or their chin by actually encouraging patients to think about sun protective clothing that has design features that protect you there, you've actually covered 80% of your battle by just preventing the sun damage in the first place and starting that at a younger age. So I think it's really helping people understand the whole picture and not just trying to treat what's already happened once it's happened, but focusing on prevention is really my, my goal overall. Um, and, and then a couple times during a conversation, you've referred to the need um, for balance between family and, uh, and, and, and work life. So this is adding a whole other business to your already very, very busy life. So just how have you managed to really balance launching this amazing brand, running your own set of clinics, doing a merger? How, how have you balanced that personally almost? You know, in a lot of ways, I just make my kids a part of everything so that they just think it's part of their lifestyle too. You know, I'll often, you know, encourage them to be a part of the, you know, process wherever I am doing things. Um, oftentimes, you know, my daughter um, will spend some time with me at my office over the summer, you know, helping out with our medical assistance between rooms, cleaning the rooms with the extra sanitary practices. I try to make sure that they are part of what I do and not just, you know, sitting at home or doing something else, <laughs> waiting for me to come home. Because I feel like when they see especially if they see me working and seeing how hard I do, why I do what I do is really, it, I think it encourages them to look at them, what they do in life is not through the lens of the financial reimbursement, but through the lens of satisfaction and personal and professional satisfaction so that they see that, yes, you know, my husband's an orthopedic surgeon. It's true. I don't have to work, but I love my patients. I love what I do. And I know we can make a difference. And the other things in terms of my clothing line, in terms of their long-term benefits as well, that it's seeing it not through the lens of that financial part of things, seeing it entirely differently even if it means my, my 15 year old daughter's cleaning the exam room, she'll see that, yes, I do it too. <laughs> I answer the phones too. When, I, when it's ringing, I do help my staff. I'm not gonna sit on the side and say, it's not my job. I want them to see that you have to get in there and do the work to really see the benefits. I think that's an absolutely beautiful lesson. And I just have to add as a side thing that um, quite a few of the clinic owners I've interviewed recently have, I don't know whether it's a coincidence or not, but they have been the children themselves of, clinic owners, dentists, you know, various, various um, surgeons. Um, so, and they've all mentioned recently that seeing their parents work in practice um, really motivated them. So I have a feeling that you may be bringing up <laughs> and I can I, and I can admit that I, I am the daughter of two physicians. Yeah, so it, it does. It, it, there's something that says that doctors we get doctors, and I, I'm hoping that I do the same. <laughs> there you go. They well on their um, Dr. Aram Elias, thank you very much for an extremely fascinating hour. It's been an absolute pleasure having you as a guest on How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic. Um, if people want to get in touch with you and learn a little bit more about what you do, what's the best place? You know, I think our website for the clothing line, because I have a huge section on our blog and everything that describes how we do things, is ambernoon.com. And as another, let me interrupt one second. Can other clinics carry that clothing line? Yes, uh, in terms of we, we have a, a website as well, too, and we, we do wholesale. And also at Schweiger Dermatology, which is the practice that, that I merged with, so we're on their website as well, too.
Fantastic. We'll, of course, put all those details um, in the show notes as well. So anyone listening to this, just pop down straight under the, the podcast. All those links, plus several others, um, will be there for you, to, for you to have easy access to. Um, Dr. Ilias, thank you again very much um, for being a guest on How I Scaled My Aesthetic Practice. Thank you so much for having me. And for everyone else, I'm Miriam Shaviv, um, Director of Content at Brainstorm Digital, and I will see you on the next episode of How I Scaled My Aesthetic Practice.